This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Ledin.io. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching Untold Stories, where twice a week together we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders to understand how this movement really came to be. And today was one of those days where I woke up at like 4 a.m. I saw, I looked at the price. I saw the price of Bitcoin was at a certain number. And then I w- then this morning I woke up and I didn't bother to check the price because I checked it a few hours earlier. And it was one of those days where the price was down like 10% in a few hours, all because of some fear, uncertainty, and doubt that Bloomberg recycled some five-year-old news that China was banning Bitcoin. Uh, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about a lot of other subjects that are pertaining to the day, Bitcoin, previous history, current day, and where we're going in the future, what these platforms and these blockchains are building and doing. And today, I'm very excited to have Sarsen Funds, Jahon Jamili. You are the chief marketing officer at Sarsen Funds. We've actually had John Sarsen on the, on, the, uh, on the show before. It's good to have you guys consistently on the show because you guys are a macro fund. You're an independent provider of blockchain technology and cryptocurrency marketing. Um, you guys were the first among U.S. cryptocurrency managers to directly address the concerns of financial advisors by also focusing on education for both the advisor and the client. And now you guys are huge. Uh, thank you for continuing to do what you do. And now you're writing a book called Deep Crypto. And anyone can check it out at discoverdeepcrypto.com. Jahon, you were uh, um, not only the CMO of, um, well, first of all, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories. Well, thanks very much for having me, Charlie. It's a pleasure. It's always great to speak with you. You um, you worked at um, some venture-backed startups like Kapow and the Appraisal Lane, but very cool. You were a former U.S. intelligence officer at the Defense Intelligence Agency. And maybe you can give us a little bit of insight into, does our government actually use mainstream media as a tool to kind of control the narrative of the day. Is that a conspiracy theory or does that actually happen? Is that a, a documented thing? Well, control is an interesting word to use. I mean, you're if, if, if you want to say control, you're giving a lot of credit to the apparatus of government and being True able story. to coherently do something, which inherently is, is really not the case. Um, I, I think what you find is that, you know, we're in this era, you know, especially in the post 9-11 era, where the you know, the traditional concept of the nation state system, the nation state order of how the globe is organized is really starting to change very rapidly. Um, and you have this conglomeration of media and corporate America and lobbyist groups that influence lawmakers. And it's it gets muddy. It really, really does. And um, it's hard to really discern, uh, you know, where truth is derived from, you know, as you know, I was an intelligence officer and seeking truth uh, was, you know, sort of like at the core of what we were trying to do individually in the field. But, you know, we live in the era of fake news and yeah, government is not immune to that, even amongst itself. And I think that for folks to think there's a coordinated effort in the government is really to maybe give the government too much credit and like its ability to coherently do something. Um, but you know, what, what draws me to blockchain in this era is that blockchain can solve the global trust deficit in a lot of interesting ways. 
And uh, a lot of our institutions, our own government itself is, is wrestling and grappling with that challenge. And there's a lot of fear in there. There's a lot of old institutions that stand to lose if they don't understand really the implications behind it. And that was when John and I started Sarsen Funds. That was one of the one things that we queued in on is that uh, we, you know, we wanted to challenge the cryptocurrency community to do a better job about educating. And that's really where the gap was. There was this huge knowledge gap between the technology innovators and Wall Street and Washington. And the gap was huge. And they weren't even speaking the same language. You know, technologists have this mantra or sometimes this feeling that if you build something great, people should just flock to it. Well, the Wall Street goes to no man and neither does Washington, D.C. And this was going to take some education in a way that was digestible and understandable and in a, in a way that was also framed as being consistent with American ideals, historical American ideals of freedom of information, freedom of thought, innovation. And I think that uh, a lot of folks are misinterpreting, uh, you know, the, the concept of America and blockchain as being uh, you know, mutually exclusive. They're not. There is nothing more American than Bitcoin. It's as American as apple pie. I've said it before, and I'm going to continue to beat that drum that we stand to really gain as a society as we start to understand this and embrace it rather than run from it. You know, I think, I think I've heard Bitcoin is apple pie from, from you. And then I've used that term and have asked, uh, since, since we had, um, since I've, he since hearing that quote, I've, I've been having some politicians on the show, uh, uh, future senators and congresswomen and congressmen and everything. And, uh, mayors and multiple mayors and down city commissioners. And I'll always repeat that Bitcoin is as, is as American as apple pie. And they all agree. They all agree, especially if they understand it, especially if they understand it. It's like one of the most um, American things that can possibly come out of the last 50 years, because freedom and liberty are not free and require sacrifice. And so there is a lot of sacrifice going on here. But at the same time, What's happening is you're right. And I like the term that you use. We're solving the global trust deficit. I've never heard this before. I never heard of that term. Did you coin that? Where did that come from? And what does it mean? Well, that's something that, um, you know, we decided that uh, really was pure and at the, at the core of the blockchain value proposition. And we coined that uh, about two and a half years ago in some of our presentations of, of explaining to financial advisors specifically what blockchain was doing. Everybody understood it was a great technology. And some folks had the understanding of the differences between a centralized network and a decentralized network and a trusted third party versus not needing one. But they didn't understand what does this do? Like, what is the net result? What is the positive here? And that is the positive. When you have trust built into the protocol, that really can solve a lot of the problems that we're having right now because Why? we do we do have this global trust deficit. Well, I like trusting you, know, you. You want to trust me. You know, human relationships, psycho relationships are all built on trust. You know, as we've grown and this human network has grown, people have access to information in ways they've never had before historically. This type of information like news and higher education and uh, access to like deep analysis, this was reserved for highly educated folks, right? Highly educated or folks that were in government or like, if you look back and I take a several hundred year view of this. Yeah. This type of knowledge was locked away to like an elite group of society members. Now it's accessible to everybody. And what has happened is the intermediaries in between uh, those, those traditional columns of brokerage of info, right? Your news outlets, 
they are faced with two things, a changing business model in which click results in revenue. So they need to adjust in order to survive. But at the same time, so many people have access to independent information that they're beginning to see that those arbiters of info, those brokers of information and data aren't always right. And that their motivations are more in line with the business model rather than providing with people with info because info is accessible to anybody now, you know, with an internet connection. So this is what's causing this mayhem that you have these traditional outlets of trust that have deviated and changed and altered the way in which they message and report and provide info to a business model they can't keep up with. At the same time, you have people being able to access information for themselves. There's a huge deficit of trust across everything. Oh, absolutely. And this is coming to light too in government. You know, people are beginning to see like money and dark money and political campaign contributions are really what is driving decisions at the policy level. And that it's maybe even not their elected officials that are making decisions. You know, elected officials, especially in Congress, you know, I worked in Congress before I was at DIA. Their knowledge depth needs to be like a mile wide and an inch deep. If people realize that most bills are written and pushed through and promoted by 25, 26-year-old staffers, they would be appalled. But that's very much the case. That's very much the fact. Uh, most senators, most Congress people don't read even the legislation they vote on. And it's so laden with pork and special interest money. And now that's starting yeah. to come to light. People can find this information out for themselves. Of course, there's going to be this mistrust. Are we at a crossroads in in where we go as as a in regards to democratic societies? Because socialists and communists will point to this and say, look, this is happening and it's dark and it's so bad. Therefore, we need to, you know, society should be run this way. But the crypto folk and the, you know, the the Bitcoiners and the in the past 10, all of us kind of are saying, look, this is happening, but we can take all of this, like this is just because this is happening is a failure of the trust mechanism, not the system itself. And if we can solve the trust mechanism or remove the, the, the ability for me to say we have to trust that staffer or his motivations or her motivations, then we can actually be in an amazing society that's fully decentralized. Absolutely. And I think also the trust needs to work into like in the other direction. Elected officials and oh, government. Oh, yeah. Okay. They need to trust the people to a degree. And we forgot about that at some way, somewhere down the road. And like all great American innovations and changes, it's not going to start from the top down. You were talking about locally elected officials and local politicians that you've been talking to that are that are in agreement with you. It's going to start from the bottom up. And this is where I think the crypto community needs to start to organize itself a little bit better and making sure that we're reaching those touch points at the grassroots level. Mayor Miami, right? There's a couple other, there's mayor of, uh, I think, Jackson, Tennessee. Yeah, my These Sarasota, t- where I live, the mayor of Sarasota also loves Bitcoin. He's not, we're a small town, 100,000 people, but he's my friend and he loves Bitcoin too. So he wants yeah, me to see, add him to the list. When you see these <laughs> local officials start to make positive changes in their local communities, that's how things happen. That that's how great things happen in this country from the bottom up, from this from the communities to the states up, not from the top down. It's never worked well from the top down. That's not how we're architected. We're a republic. 
Um, a lot of people forget that um, and, and want and they kind of yearn for this strong centralized yeah. government and fall for that narrative. But that's that's not the case. You know, one of the things I point to, I'm a big history buff, and there's this concept in American political science called American exceptionalism. Right. What makes America so different? Yeah, it's uh, that. What's that term where we can go? So this from sea to sea, we were allowed to go. There was like an ethos. It was manifest destiny. Manifest destiny. And, yeah, yeah. Is that it, kind it, of the same thing? Right. That was so like there's a couple arguments of like, OK, what what makes America so special? Right. One of it is we have this frontier expansion, this manifest destiny, that capability. There's another argument that says, well, we have a lack of historical nobility. There's no like birthright aristocracy here in the United States. Right. Like they have That's in Europe. Like, Most of the world here. has some some. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you, you know, here it's economic. Right. But like, you know, in, in Europe, you're born a Duke, you're born a Duke and like your your family goes back to like 600 AD yeah. or, or something where in, in your nobility, you know, nobility came from. We didn't have that here either. But I think one of the biggest distinctions, and this is where blockchain can thrive in a transnational environment and really push forward American values, is the fact that America was an idea before it was a country, before we became a nation. It was an idea. It was conceived of. It was conceptualized. It was documented. It was debated over. And then it came into formation. That has never happened anywhere else like that before. It usually rose up and evolved over, you know, whether it was a village to a monarchy to some other type of mechanism. But here it was actually thought about first. And it was a collection of independent states that came together and said, you know, once they had a, like a, a common enemy sure. and were able to, you know, you know, join or die and, and craft the concept of, of what this could be. And I think blockchain and the crypto community needs to take a, a note and a, a little bit of, a, you know, hi- historical advice here. We're at this point now, you have China banning Bitcoin again for the millionth time this morning. And then you have also similar draconian measures happening in Kentucky where they've issued Celsius with this emergency cease and desist, right? We're at this point now where we can't afford as a crypto community to be so tribalistic. Just like the states, the early colonies could not afford to be so tribalistic at, in, in the 1700s, late 1700s. We're at that point too, where it's a joint or die. We can't have Mac, Bitcoin maximalists and like this altcoin community and that sure. altcoin community or the DeFi proponents all be like so separated. We're a digital asset ecosystem. And blockchain is the path forward. We need to start putting those differences aside so we can collectively utilize our, our and leverage our resources here to reach those like those local politicians, get to those local stores, make some real impact. Because at some point in time we're going to want to promote and 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 help support pro crypto politicians get into office. Yeah. This is where we start. You know, we you do, remember, we've done it though, as a crypto- those- those states were infighting with each other before they were strong enough to finally come together and then do this. So I do agree with you. And I've been so against tribalism, although, you know, I have my own belief when it comes to Bitcoin and decentralization and everything else. I'm no maximalist. I don't believe in tribalism or maximalism. I'm very against it. And I'm very happy to say that over the last two years, it really has become very, very fringe. Now, you can be someone who loves Bitcoin and say, that Bitcoin is the only sound money, the only sovereign money, the only fully decentralized, you know, blockchain that really exists today. That's really the only one of the only ones that is probably not, you know, overtakeable and still want to invest and be involved and advise and, 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 and um, like just have fun with all these other 
first layers and, and tokens and blockchains and things like that, as long as you're honest and kind of upfront about it. But I think that now we're also big enough that everyone's comfortable with kind of who they are. Bitcoin is comfortable with what it is. Everything else is kind of comfortable with where it fits into with Bitcoin. I think there was always the hostility and I believe that that maximalism actually came from the altcoiner world, starting from when Ethereum wanted to launch on top of Bitcoin and then that was pushed away, you know, but at the same time, and then there was the whole scaling war and things like that. It really is that pie is growing. You're right, though. We need to stop the fighting and it has been it has been going away. No, I mean, it has it has been subsiding, but it's something that can creep up very, very easily. Right. And we need to look at the blockchain ecosystem as like an entire universe that's still growing. Yeah. There's going to be stratification of these assets. And just because I believe one thing is great for my best store of value doesn't mean that there's a completely different thing that I don't think also can be value represented in, a, in another way. Like, you know, oh, I, I like I have that my, way of putting it. Yeah. Like you have your money now that you transact with, but that's not like what your long term savings mechanism and that's not like you can also view a physical piece of real estate as having value, but like they're not all represented with the same protocol necessarily the best way. So like you're going to see this stratification uh, um, across digital assets where, hey, you know, Bitcoin might be your long term store of value, but like you're not going to buy a pack of gum with it necessarily. Maybe you use Dogecoin for something like that or, you know, something that's like fun or like that could be like a community money for like a rewards program. Right. There's all sorts of ways in which value is expressed. Sure. Sure. And that really speaks to the potential diversification of digital assets. I guess the maximalist would respond to that and say, you do your real estate token. And I'm, and I'm, I'm excited for securitized real estate, you know, tokenized real estate. It's, it's going to be amazing. But the maximalist hat would say, if it's not on Bitcoin or on some, you know, platform that's like very far along on the path to decentralization, then when you do it on a blockchain, that can be, as the Chinese government says, programmable. Oh, no, actually, it was the American government, the New York Times say programmable. No, it was the Bank of England that needs block, you know, right. blockchain to be programmable. If they're programmable, where they can be frozen, reversed, then, then the maximalists will say, what's the point of doing it at all? What's the point of doing tokenized real estate if that same tokenized real estate can be frozen? In fact, a lot easier than freezing you know, your house because you can still live in your house. So it's like a give and take, you know, it's like, but there's a perfect harmonial balance. And that's where you guys educate and invest because that balance is very, very important, I feel like. No, it, it is important. And we try to express that across, uh, you know, some of our investment products and strategies on the investment management side is to give a breadth of diversification yeah. across the asset class. Um, you know, if you were to invest in, in, in like, you know, internet companies like, you know, 20 years ago and. You know, you thought that MySpace was going to be like the best and, and brightest you would have lost. So like, you know, it's an evolving space and technology does yeah. nothing but disrupt itself. So it's uh, it's important to understand what's new. It's important to understand the different, uh, you know, the different use cases and what is emergent as a best of breed in, in different types of, uh, you know, use cases like IoT, for instance, self-driving cars. Right? Are you going to use a the Bitcoin network to pass back and forth that type of information. If you have a self-driving car, right? You need yeah. immutable information received from the car in front of you. That car needs to be receiving immutable information in real time from all sorts of different data points and while you're moving. There is a blockchain solution to that, yeah. right? And like those types of ecosystems are, are, are developing and like who knows how these are going to be layered on top of each other. It needs to be something like that 
And and what I'll be I'll be sitting here at episode 15,000 telling you before you buy that car, tell me what blockchain that's on. Tell me what protocol that's on. Because if it's on a protocol that is proven in the past or we know or anyone who does the work can be controlled by a few people, or is it one like I I'm invested in um projects that are actually like KYC chains, but they are run by federations of people or, or mainnets, you know? So it's like, here are chains that actually are KYC chains. They are AML chains. They are chains where you have to put up your documentation to actually transact on them. But then, but that's like, it's like, you know, that that's what you're getting, you know? But actually it, I, I wanted to ask you before I forget, because you're an institution and um, you probably talked a lot of other, other institutions. Are they investing in things like Avalanche, Solana, you know, like first layer, Siri network, all these other things, or are they still dabbling in like the ones that are on Coinbase? I think some of the larger, some of the larger institutions are, are still dabbling in, in, in what they you know can see and feel on like a major place like Coinbase, but there are a number of uh, emergent and maybe not so well known institutions that are very much interested in like the Solanas of the world. And so we're starting to see that demand, uh, you know, start to creep up, which we're happy about. It means what that tells me is that people are starting to learn when they start to like get yeah. beyond like the, the the traditional like large large coin cryptocurrencies. Today's show is brought to you by our newest sponsor, Ledin.io, a better home for your Bitcoin, and they are amazing. They're secure, simple and such an easy to use platform for managing and growing your digital wealth. You can earn interest on your Bitcoin and your USDC with some of the industry's best rates, 6.1% APY on your first two Bitcoin and 9% APY on your USDC. You can use your Bitcoin as collateral with their lead-in loans to get quick access to dollars or to double your Bitcoin savings with their popular B2X loan. If it sounds too good to be true, it's not because they've partnered with Armanino LLP to provide proof of reserve attestations. That means in a few simple clicks, you can log in and you can verify your assets on Ledin are fully accounted for. And this is truly first in class transparency and accountability. And I'm excited to get to the meat of, the, of, of what we're talking about here. We're giving $50 away in free Bitcoin to everyone. All you got to do is go to untoldstories.link forward slash L-E-D-N. And we're giving $50 to anyone who goes on and creates a new loan. And that can literally pay for your interest in the first half of the year, depending on the size of your loan. It's an interest-free loan. Why not? Might as well do it, right? Untoldstories.link forward slash Leiden. Thank you guys for being amazing. The, um, the Economist magazine just published like a special whole section I actually got a physical, I didn't even know I was physically subscribed to them. I still get it. It was great. It was like down the, the DeFi rabbit hole. And it was, it was the perils and promise of, of decentralized finance. And I'm like, wow, this is a global magazine that regulators freaking probably the Duke of England is reading it, you know? Uh, Queen of England is probably reading it too. So here we go. But, and, so, and I read it and it was actually, actually, I was very impressed by how balanced it was. Um, but what are the major things that regulators and government officials are still failing to grasp now in 2021? What frustrates you? What are you like, ah, I just, it's annoying that I still have to explain this over and over again. They don't understand. And there are some government agencies that do very, do very much understand this. Like 
ones that I might have had some experience with professionally in the past. Yes, you see, for sure. I like like that understands this is the most like Bitcoin particularly is the most transparent payment network in history. And a lot of the fear, uncertainty, and doubt stems from uh, the fact that folks think it's 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 used for illicit purposes, and that's the bulk of what it's used for. And I, you know, it's it's I use sort of my previous experience in the intelligence community, uh, and also with the relationships I still have with the intel community and with law enforcement, to really make the case cogently that you'd have to be an idiot of a criminal network to want to use cryptocurrencies as your medium. The stats don't <laughs> just don't back it up. The the, yeah. the the currency of choice still for crime uh, in the world is the is the fiat dollar, yeah. and it's much easier to launder cash than it is to launder cryptocurrency. So I think we're starting to make headway against that argument because that's the easiest thing that regulators uh, really cue in on. It's like nobody wants to facilitate dirty money. No one wants to facilitate terrorism or or criminal activity and. We need to make a better case for how actually with blockchain technology and with Bitcoin, it's really much easier to protect investors and consumers than, than really what we've let the reputation become. I think we're making headway about on that, but it's just taken some time. Consumer protection is the overreaching, you know, for, for better a lot of the times, kind of like government mandate, right? That allows the government to on a federal level to come in and from from the grandmas to me and you to everyone be consumer protection in fact you know the new chairman of the sec gary gensler is paying a lot of twitter ads talking about how the sec is protecting us consumers consumer protection is that the right way to go about it you think this new sec next few years is going to be beneficial for us because he is so brilliant and he understands bitcoin and crypto to a level where he he taught it or are we is that a you think that'll be a net negative for us? Well, my concern is always when folks leave like you know academia or leave the private sector and become a, a bureaucrat that sometimes the um, sometimes yeah, they why do they do that? It's a good question. <laughs> it's a good question. We have a lot of uh, very powerful unelected officials in, in our like, country. Is it like the movies where you know the president will call and be like, "We need you to serve the country. I need you as SEC chair." Oftentimes, and you can get really cynical about it too, unfortunately. And what, um, you know, what I hope to see out of the SEC is less of a PR campaign and more of a proactive dialogue. We need to be having these conversations. We need to be, he needs to be talking to Coinbase. We need to have these conversations in the open. There's a lot of educating that needs to be done on both sides, right? The industry needs to know how to address these concerns. And we need to have that dialogue going on. I think they would be best served to really open up the communication lines a bit more with the crypto industry. But the trouble is, and, and what frustrates me, is like the crypto industry can't out-meme this, right? We can't get yeah. too cynical and continue to be wise asses in our responses because that's not going to get anywhere. We need to be cogent and really thorough in how we express and understand. It's going to be frustrating at times, but you know we're, we're not going to win a meme war. That's not going to be the pathway to success here. Don't you think Brian Armstrong and, and this Coinbase team did everything they could to avoid where how it ended up being? No one wants to go head to head with the SEC. It's like no one wants to go in a dual battle with with Utra, you know, or whatever it is. You never want to uh, uh, be in a, a sword duel. So at the end no, of the of day, so why? So so I just I want to understand 
how that bubbled up so badly to the surface. And really, like, this is a stupid question, but but if if the SEC is now the American Consumer Protection Agency, which it seems like it is from all facets, from crypto to, to securities to everything, which, again, I'm not advocating against, shouldn't it be an elected position? Shouldn't the whole SEC, all the chairmen be, uh, or chairwoman, there should be more chairwoman too, be elected officials? Well, we should probably have a lot more elected officials, but unfortunately, you know, ultimately he reports to the Treasury Secretary and she, you know, the Treasury Secretary is not elected appointed official. official. Yeah, correct. So one of the things that we really need to cue in on is like the larger financial apparatus of, of uh, federal regulatory uh, bodies in the, yeah. in the United States. And there is still an enormous amount of pressure. From a lot of those uh, highly level, uh, you know, high level appointed officials that are coming still from, you know, their network, their background, their yeah. previous experience working for traditional financial institutions that have a lot to lose in this game, and that have been also very good about, uh, you know, keeping keeping the FUD moving. So that's where I get back to these local stories and, and working with local governments. It's really hard to push back against the collection of grassroots success stories. And the more that the crypto community can dive into what's going on locally, uh, especially with local elected government officials, the more success we're going to have in this because it's going to be a very hard argument for the federal government to make, uh, you know, to keep on making that this is bad, right? And that there's all sorts of things that need to be protected. So it really it does it starts at the ground level. We need to be much more cognizant about that. We're not going to fight a head on battle from the top. It's going to come from underneath. So what Coinbase really and, and, yeah. and larger folks in the industry need to start doing is starting to really work with state governments, starting to work with local governments, because that's where the groundswell of support is going to eventually come from. What's the relationship between like who who's responsible for that? Because you have the developers who are and what made us great as as crypto folk is how fast we can develop new ideas and put them down and, and conceptualize them and then create the social experiment that involves hundreds of thousands of people, you know, holding this token on the next day. I mean, it's a complicated relationship between developers, lawyer, businesses, you're the institution, is it your job? And then you guys educate and invest in, in other things. Is it their jobs? It's, it's a very complicated, is it my job? Whose job is it? It's everyone's job. Because now what we've seen, this is political. And Politics and success in politics is, is not the same as success in developing an application. Success in politics follows some very old rules. Like what? It, personal relationships. And we need to be better about building. At the end of the day, someone that, whose hand we can shake and look in the eye. And this is where we need to continue to broaden the, uh, you know, broaden the community beyond developers, beyond the business owners. And we need to start creating our own political elements. Ones that aren't on the fringe, ones that are inclusive by nature, and ones that are geared towards educating, because we're going to have to educate policymakers, we're going to have to educate the public, we're going to have to educate uh, candidates. So we need to really start to think as a community how we can best support political organization, how we can best support keeping track of this, and we can do this in, in so many different ways. You I was have really to play by their rules, and I'm I'm I. In the past, when you want to do that and you play by their rules over time, you get encumbered in the system and the system itself becomes bigger for you than whatever you were for before you came into it. 
And luckily, Bitcoin and crypto is a big enough thing that it transcends you wanting to be part of the system. But I still struggle with the hook because I know local politicians and I'm friends with them, but I don't know what to say. I I, I don't know how to get pro crypto pro crypto policy. Do I do I airdrop tokens to the whole city? Do you create voting mechanisms? Do you do you build like affordable housing? Like what's what's the way to keep the narrative pro us, I guess, is what I'm saying on a local level. Local use cases, local town halls, local forums, bring people together. In every community here in the United States, there's a very diverse group of people that hold crypto. And they are laborers, they're trade union folks, electricians, business owners, dentists. Get them all in a room together and discuss. Get them all in a room together and talk about Hey, these are some like very basic day-to-day use cases. Maybe you, it's not going to result in some like definitive action and like, hey, look, maybe we put the library system on the blockchain, right? Maybe it doesn't oh. result in that, but it gets the conversation going. It says, okay, we understand that this is great, but how has it helped me? Get to that personal level because then it starts to transcend the politics, right? How has how crypto affected me? How do I see it as a plumber? How do I see it as a teacher? How do I see it as like a parent, right? I think of my own community here. I live in, I live just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, in a coastal town, and it's a small town, thirty, like less than thirty thousand people, and there's a lot of working class folks here. You'd be surprised how many have crypto and how many have been in crypto for a very long time, and it's a really diverse group. And like otherwise, they wouldn't really have a lot of common things to talk about. But it's all affected them differently. So we need to start having those personal conversations. Yeah. And that's where it starts. That's when politicians start to listen, because those are registered voters at the end of the day. If we can, if we can start from the local level and really explaining, I think even explaining this concept of like how blockchain is solving the global trust deficit, because any politician has to trust someone else. These handshake backroom deals, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. It's a constant frustration. It is. And here's the other thing, too, is like Bitcoin's a powerful force for freedom. There's a billion people in the world that are unbanked, that are going to have access and have a savings mechanism that they haven't had before. And you know what? Some of those people are here in the United States, right? A lot of folks have watched their savings get eroded in its purchasing power. Yeah. Not everybody owns stock securities or real estate, but they feel desperate now. Now here's a mechanism, young student. Here's a mechanism, single mom, that you can put, like whatever you have that's a little bit, maybe you can put away, right? So maybe it's those types of organizations and those types of conversations that can be had that really get to somebody's day-to-day problem. It's really sad. I read a statistic actually that said that, yeah, hooray, hooray, the average American net worth rose by like 17% last year, as long as I held real estate and stocks. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know anyone who... Like most of my friends, I'm only 30. Like most, unless you're in crypto, you don't own any real estate yet. Um, you don't, don't own any stocks. Uh, okay. It just screwed over like everyone. And so. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Stimulus and I'm, really I, bad. All of that. Like we, we basically took 2009 and said, we don't want people to suffer. So let's make most suffer and some not have to. And the ones who make the to- rules. Yeah, it sucks. Sorry. No, I was going to say, you know, where we can start to like have 
aid organizations, community organizations, maybe even a program like WIC, right? Women, Infants, and Children, which provides like subsidy amounts for, uh, you know, necessities and groceries, where sure. we can start to utilize maybe crypto and start to get them to think about it. Um, I think we'll really, really start to make some headway where folks can see a little bit of a difference. And as, as the space matures too, we'll see less volatility. But I think there's plenty of volatility on the downside for purchasing power of their dollar that people are starting to really, you know, wake up a little bit. Um, so like, again, it's those town hall conversations. It's those, those community awesome dialogues. Ones, yep. Absolutely. Is when you start to see, and then you'll start, then the crypto community will start to learn what the messaging should be. Because they're going to hear it not from themselves in the echo chamber of Twitter. They're going to hear it from like, the construction worker who's been taking, yeah, taking a portion of his salary and just putting it into something since, you know, putting it into, you know, Bitcoin or, or whatever since 2017. And then all of a sudden he's like, holy shit, I have a little bit of savings now. And I was able to do X, Y, and Z with it. I was able to like get my kid into that sports program, or I was able to do something where I didn't feel like I was just constantly working for less and less money. So the beauty of right? it too, is that you don't need permission either. So if you have savings and, and you hold stocks or real estate and you want to use those tools to further your life, to buy more real estate, to borrow against it, to grow your net worth, to start a business, you need permission. You need a good credit score. You go, you want to, I want to borrow money. If you own a million dollar house, you want to borrow a hundred thousand dollars against it. You still need a good credit score. And if you're not part of that system, which most people aren't, I'm not part of that system anymore. You can't access any of those tools anymore. But the beauty now, if you're holding Bitcoin or a crypto that represents something like we've talked about, some tokenized asset in seconds, I was explaining to this to a friend of mine who has, who wants to borrow against a Bitcoin for a down payment on his house. I was like, you don't need to do it now. Don't start paying interest today. That when you have the house and you need to send them the wire for closing, that's when you take the loan out against your Bitcoin because it can be done in seconds. Beautiful. And, and the more we can start to like drive some of those stories home, I think the more success we're, we're going to have. So like ultimately, it. Charlie, it's our responsibility individually. And it's our responsibility to have these conversations at the ground level and to then start to like use that momentum and start to have those conversations with our local officials who oftentimes might themselves be holding crypto as well. Right. Most this of them is where are. It starts. It does. All great changes start from the gr grassroots. All great changes start with grassroots. The, uh, before I forget, no, I had a guest the other day and he said exactly what you were saying was right now you have all these politicians and, and, and civil servants and things like that own crypto directly, but soon it's going to be indirectly through institutions and funds and pensions and retirement and things like that slowly. And they're going to wake up and realize it because they're going to see it on random statements or books and records that, oh, they in fact own a piece of a crypto company or own some crypto directly. And like, oh shit, now this is my money now. And so here we go. It's going to, everything's going to change. And it's a beautiful thing. No, it is. And actually, you know, I make this argument all the time that this is actually where financial advisors can be a hero here. There's a lot in the yep. crypto, a lot of folks in the crypto community that like, uh, you know, queue in on, on wealth managers because they feel like they're going to be disintermediated. And to a degree, maybe that there's some truth in that. But really, my dad is not going to put $100,000 onto something on his phone. It's That's true. just a fact. But he's already has an, a, a trusted relationship. There is a little bit of trust left in America. Most Americans, especially That's affluent true. Americans, trust their financial advisors. Though. 
It's a, it's usually a multi-year relationship. When you manage someone's money, you're going to develop trust over time. Financial advisors, and we, that's our hallmark at Sarsenfunds, is to educate them, are going to be viewed by a lot of Americans as the resource on this. So the more they can get an understanding, more financial advisors get an understanding of how to explain this to a client, because they, they, they know what their clients' retirement goals are. They know how to like, you know, what their plan, their financial plans are. The more they're going to be able to integrate that. So believe it or not, your everyday local financial advisor has the opportunity, if they want to seize on it, to be the hero here for a lot of Americans in, their, in getting access to cryptocurrency. Thank you so much for, for taking the time and coming on Untold Stories. In fact, actually, my, I had a financial advisor and, and we're still friends, but he left, he left the, the trust bank that he was with to go work for a, a Bitcoin company. <laughs> well, hopefully he can spread that knowledge back to some of his old peers and colleagues. He did. He's great. He's surfing now. He's in LA surfing all the time. He gets his great life. He's really happy. But oh, we're still friends. It's great. Jahan, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. Sarsen Funds. I love having you guys back on every like six months because, and it's great that we continue doing it because you're out there doing everything that you talked about that we need to do. You're out there doing. So it's great to hear back on what needs to be happening and everything like that. Appreciate you taking the time today. And thanks for everyone for listening to Untold Stories. I love it. I love you guys. This was like my episode 230 something probably. So it's just, I love my job. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. Thank you very much, Charlie. Bye.